Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you're in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Scale. Hey listeners, it's Will here. Our mission is to help the AEC industry protect itself by making technology easy. If you've ever listened to our show, then you know that the three pillars of scaling a business are people, process, and technology. So if you suspect technology is your weak link, then book a call with us to see where we can help maximize your company's IT and cybersecurity strategy. Just go to buildingscale.net slash help. Today's guest is Meg Tidd. Meg is the CEO of VIP Structures and its sister companies, VIP Architectural Associates, VIP Development, and IPD Engineering, where she's responsible for all day-to-day operations as well as long-term strategies and initiatives. VIP Structures offers clients a unique approach to building by bringing design and construction together under one roof. They've completed over 30 million square feet of buildings since its inception in 1975. In addition, VIP has owned and operated over 3 million square feet of space. Being owners and developers on top of design and construction means that VIP works with a client in a unique way and brings uh, to each project an approach more from an owner's perspective. Meg previously served as Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Operating Officer for a total of eight years before taking on the CEO role. During her tenure at VIP, she had played pivotal roles in the company's transition to uh, establishing a second-generation family company. She has led the company through multiple initiatives, a rebranding of VIP's mission, vision, and purpose, which I love, institutionalizing standard operating procedures, improving data collection and analysis, and a cultural shift driving integration and collaboration across the organization. Meg is also a board member and vice president of the Gifford Foundation, a member of YPO and Profound, a Central New York Business Journal 40 under 40 honoree, and graduate of leadership, Greater Syracuse. And if that is not enough, uh, her and her husband also own a nano brewery called Rice Form brewing. Uh, so stop by for a pint if you're ever in the Marcellus area right outside of Syracuse. With all that said, Meg, welcome. To welcome the to the show. <laughs> That's killer. It's one hell of an intro. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So as we've said, and I, I, I don't know, maybe maybe me more than Will, maybe both of us equally, we have been uh, super big fans of yours. Gutching over you since the initial conversation we had, and then when I was going through and building out this intro, I was like, oh, my God, like, yeah, this isn't enough. Like this, there's more, there's way more to this is like a lot of amazing things. But now this is not, this doesn't tell the tale. So I'm really excited for this episode. And and with that, let's just kick it off. So tell us about you. Tell us about your origin story. Tell us about uh, VIP and all the greatness. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, VIP was founded in 1975, as you said. And in our history, it was it was really founded on the premise that you don't want to blow apart the building process at its major junctures. So that was Dave Nutting's whole concept was, you know, how do we really focus on making us a one-stop shop for our, for our clients? 
Um, and what does that process look like? And so everything we've really built upon as an organization has been around that. And we tend to bring, like you said, that owner's perspective to projects. And when we're partnering with folks, we may make suggestions to them like, you know, why don't we make this, uh, you know, a, a 35 or 40 foot clear because that's going to resell on the market all day long if you aren't sure what you're going to do with this building. So that is always the perspective we want to bring. You know, how do we partner? How do we let you know what we have done on our own assets and, and what we want to treat accordingly? Also core to VIP, and you mentioned it a little bit, is, is really that that purpose, that passion, you know, what do we, what do we stand for? What are we fighting for? What are we all about? I mean, I know we'll get into that a little bit later, but that is, has been a key to who we are. And again, my origin story, and I'll get into that in a quick second, uh, my origin story and how I ended up at the company is, is super interesting. But what my job now is, is, okay, we've historically been a really wonderful company. The community supported us in a really huge way. How do I make sure and how do we make sure as a company that we are giving back to that community? And again, we'll, we'll get into some of that in a little bit. But so like you said, I've been at the company uh, for about over 10 years now. I've been in the CEO position for the last two years. It's actually yesterday was my, my two year CEO anniversary. Congratulations. Um, Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. And I never expected to come to the company. So we're a second generation family company. And I grew up just kind of stumbling through school. School was super tough, you know, not easy. When I got out, I applied to something like 14 colleges. <laughs> like, what the hell am I going to do with the rest of my life? It just so happened that music was my uh, my my passion at the time. And so I ended up heading off to college for music. Went to uh, Queen's University in uh, Kingston, Ontario for a while, eventually transferred to the Boston Conservatory and graduated with a, a bachelor's of music degree. And after that, my husband and I uh, moved to Rochester, New York, where I studied with a professor um, through the Eastman School of Music. I, I wasn't attending there, but was able to work with that professor while I was working at a not-for-profit. And also prior to actually working at a not-for-profit, took any job I could find because when you graduate with a music degree, the world's like, what the hell do we do with you? And where do you fit in all of this? <laughs> so I, I mean, I was cater waitering. I was making copies as a temp worker, removing staples, did a lot of staple removal, it was a whole thing. And eventually, like I said, land been for profit. And probably about three or four years after working there, was applying back to go for my graduate degree for music. And my boss's husband said, hey, I really think you should apply to the business school as well. And me being me, I uh, just said, hey, that sounds like a really super great plan. Why not? Um, applied to the music school and the business school in a odd twist of fate, got uh, waitlisted to the music school and accepted to the business school. I will say it was one of the, the best things that ever happened to me. But how I ended up at the company was uh, my dad and I finally you know, were out chatting one night. And after a couple of drinks, he finally turned to me and was like, I really hope you fail your GMATs. <laughs> this was this is the entry exam. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. <laughs> I remember looking at him being like, what does that even mean? Like, is that, is that even possible? And that's when he finally said, well, then maybe you'd actually consider coming and working at the company. So I said, whoa, 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 let's talk about this. Um, you know, should I get in if that's something you really want to talk about? And I want to talk about, you know, maybe I, I think about, you know, the company as I finish up this degree. So I did a, a focus in corporate strategy and marketing because our, our program allowed you to do a focus on uh, while, while getting your MBA. And uh, like I said, business school was the best thing that ever happened to me. And then, you know, after that, coming to the company, uh, I never expected to come here. But now that I'm here, it is it is like my third child. It just 
absolutely love it and love the people. That's um, one such a such a nice story of dad. So you know, we're, <laughs> I, I one day I'm gonna talk to your dad and I'll be like, "What were you doing?" But I guess it all worked out. It all made sense. He got exactly what he wanted. You seem super happy. So like that also, he made his daughter happy. So like that makes sense of sense. You'd mentioned community. You mentioned like, you know, how, how being impactful, like we've talked about this a few times. Tell me about impact. When you think about giving back and you think about these things, what, what does impact really mean to you? And and what does that look like for VIP? Oh, it means so many things. So I just had a few really great conversations um, with our senior leadership team and, and some of the folks here at the company. So we are, again, I'll, I'll go back to that that sort of that 1975 time. So Dave was a 23-year-old kid from Wellesley, Massachusetts, coming into Syracuse. He didn't know anybody. You know, he had no connections. He had no experience, no idea what he was really doing. And the community was willing to give him product on credit. Employees were willing to work without always having the promise of a paycheck. You know, clients were willing to trust him with their projects. So he genuinely believes it and, and, and you know, it's really imbued itself into who we are, that we wouldn't be the company we were today if the community hadn't welcomed him in the way that, frankly, they, they could very well have not. Um, and yet they did. And with that, a lot of what we, for years and years, so again, been around for a long time. For years, we've always given back to the community. And that's in the form of our own volunteering. That's in the form of, you know, fiscal responsibility within the community and what that looks like in donations. But we've sort of taken it to the to the next level as a company. So impact for us is really starting to take a hard look at how do we leave this community a better place than, than when we came to it or, or uh, even just the, the the community that is both the Syracuse New York community, the design build community, what does that look like? And and how do we make decisions accordingly? And there are certain things that we try and do, you know, one of which is try and create um, opportunities for underserved neighborhoods um, or underserved individuals. And that means everything from really taking a hard look at our own purchasing and what does our purchasing look like and who are those partners and are we really aligning ourselves specifically with with folks who believe in the same things that we do. It's everything from uh, boots on the ground labor. So one of the things that we did years ago was say, okay, we had a, 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 an organization that we respect very highly come to us and say, hey, regardless of grant dollars, will you guarantee that 30% uh, of, of the subcontractors on this project. But yeah, so what we decided was um, they came to us and said, hey, you know, we want MWB, MWBEs or women and minority owned companies, service disabled veteran companies. Will you sign on the dotted line to ensuring that they'll be on there? We've had a belief for a really long time that the second you make people sign on a dotted line, there's sort of this like resentment, sometimes like quota feeling of you're forcing me into something that maybe I hadn't thought about otherwise. But when you open the conversation to subcontractors and you open the conversation to clients around it in the terms of this is something we believe in and it's something we really want to do, we would love your participation with us on this, but it's certainly not required. You have a much better response from your partners and you form a much deeper bond than you would if you said, here's a piece of paper, please sign on the dotted line. And if you don't do it, you're in big trouble. So, uh, so we really started those conversations. And what we what we really wanted to do, and we said this is the other piece that we said that it's not that we didn't want minority women owned and service disabled owned companies as a part of those projects. It was more that what we really wanted was to create opportunities for the surrounding neighborhoods. So on this 
the project that we first did on this, we said, okay, let's let's have 30% boots on the ground labor. So people on the job site be from the five zip codes that surround this project. And these are these had been otherwise underserved neighborhoods who didn't necessarily have access. We came in at about 29.2%, so just shy of the mark that we had put forth. And it it's been a great project for us to look back at. You know, we've had a few community advocates come up to us and say, hey, it's really the one location that's you know, it, there's no graffiti. It hasn't been, um, you know, uh, uh, um, impacted really in, in any negative way. And their belief is it was a project built for the community by the community. Where we failed on that project was the long-term job opportunities for folks. So a lot of people were hired to that job, but they didn't necessarily go on to the next job. A lot of that had to do with transportation access. Um, a lot of that had, that had to do with potential additional training. So we started to take a hard look on every project from then on out and say, okay, how do we create the long-term job opportunities? Because this can't be a one-off every single time. And how do we encourage our subcontractors to create those opportunities as well? So we have been able to do that and we continue to hone in on that. And that's everything from, okay, where is that transportation? How do we get folks there? Um, how do we get them additional training? How do we get our clients to partake in additional training? Um, because they believe in it as well, um, so opening up that conversation. Another piece of that is something that, um, you know, companies talk about, but um, something that we, we've realized has worked well in projects. To support minority, women-owned, service-disabled, veteran companies, startup companies, companies that we really want to mentor, we will micro-contract a lot of our projects. So we may take a large drywall contract, for example, and break it up into much smaller contracts so more companies can participate in the project overall. Um, and that has been great and something that we will likely continue moving forward because it, it has, one, exposed us to some really tremendous companies um, and I think created opportunities where others may not feel like there is an opportunity. The piece I'm not mentioning here, this is sort of the community engagement aspect. I think there's a huge impact piece internally that I haven't necessarily uh, touched on, but I, we as a company are spending a lot of time. So we had set a vision about um, two years ago on really where do we want to go? What do we want to look like in five years? How do we leverage the changes that are happening in the AECD industry and, and what's happening in the world and how do those changes in the world apply to our industry and the decisions we're making? And really, first and foremost, was just a level set of, are we even taking care of ourselves first? Do we have our own life masks on? And are our people okay? And that has been a lot of soul searching and how do we take care of people? Best benefits, uh, family leave, so whether that's a father, a mother, a, 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 an adoptive parent, you know, how can we make sure we're supporting them? How do we make sure we have great healthcare benefits? Small things, but really not that small because they're, they're mental health. We've done a lot around mental health awareness and taking care of our people. So the goal for those two years and we're, what we're still working on to propel us for that five-year goal is take care of ourselves first so that around year, end of year two, which is about where we're at now, going into year three, we can start expanding that and doing more for our clients, more for the community. And so that our people feel like they are well enough taken care of, that they can be out there advocating as well. In a way, what you're talking about is the airplane rule, right? Put the mask on for yourself before you can help uh, others. So that's a really neat way of using sort of the airplane concept of self first to be able to then help others. Really neat way of doing that. And how do you 
determine what what those those improvements, what those initiatives are. How do you, you know? There's there's a laundry list of great things to do for people, right? Like yeah. it's it's endless, right? Yeah. How how did VIP decide, or how did you and the rest of the leadership team at VIP decide these are the things that we're going to focus on first? That's a little bit. I would think of it a little bit like like your sound, and it's not my people know they've heard me say this before. It's not that the people who are here are my kids. I don't mean it that way, but there's a comparison with your own children. Like with your own children, there's two things you're going to do as a parent to check in on your children. The first one of those is just to ask, what do you need? Are you doing okay? Is there anything we can do to help? Is there anything we need to change? What do you need? So there are lots of surveys, lots of one-on-ones. You know, we, we did something that we call the vision tour, which was a, a chance to really touch in with everybody and, and see where their heads were at. So really that is it, is just training our management team, getting our leaders to a position where they realize it's way less about their technical skill, way more about their leadership and their connection with their humans and making sure they have that connection so that conversation is happening. The second way is just the inference. I have noticed that there's the question, are you okay? I'm fine. Tell me how you really are. There's a bigger conversation that actually isn't the conversation. It's not that you want to make things up for people. So that's not a great idea. But hopefully you have a relationship with your direct reports that you can read between the lines like we do with our kids. You know, your kids may say, okay, this is what I need. Or they can't and they don't know the words. And your job is to sit back and watch what they're experiencing and say, okay, something's not quite right here. I have to really figure out what else to do. So again, a lot of feedback. A lot of stuff that's coming in, but also a massive encouragement of the senior leaders at the company to think of the whole person and to really figure out and, and really pay pretty close attention to the human beings that are here with us. That's very smart and also very impressive in in a in how you're focusing on scaling the business and growing the business. So that's a lot of people, a lot of people stuff, right? That's very, if it's the community, if it's your internal people, it's very people focused, you know, new hires, you know, getting people to community jobs. What about, what about the buildings themselves? Like what are, like you're building buildings for these communities. What makes a, what makes that the build unique to the community in comparison to having another school or another library or another shopping center, another, whatever it is, like what, what is, what's the impact that you're having on the actual build? So this is a space that we exist in, but also pushing really hard towards that five-year goal. I know there's some really fantastic companies out there that do this extremely well. The vision tour that I talked about, I want to touch on that if, if that's cool. Um, sure. Yeah. The vision yeah. tour I talked about gave us a chance. So what I did in that vision tour and this was about a year and a half ago, and our next one kicks off um, in the next couple of weeks. And so we'll have, you know, vision for number two. We're going to fly out and, and have tie-dye shirts for made, like, you know, for like the tour. The uh, we're, we're, we are totally in. Makes me really happy. Yeah. So on that tour, all I did is it, super basic, but again, just went through like, here's what's happening in the world. Here's how consumer preferences are changing here's the higher expectation that individuals have on businesses and here's the role that we can likely play in that space and what i found in these conversations are fascinating conversations and what i found really fast was a lot of people saying but clients don't need that they just need their building like all they need is their building they don't necessarily need us to think about like 
you know, what's the environmental impact or what's the impact on the community? And I just kept pushing harder and harder on them because again, their community could be defined by the people who work for them. Their community can be defined by their clients. Their community can be defined by all of the buildings that are around their building. And as I started to talk more and more to our employees, I said, guys, I'm not, I'm not asking for the home run. I'm not saying on the very next project, we're going to put in geothermal and we're going to put in photovoltaics and we're going to put in this and this and this and this so that the client's like, holy shit, my project costs, you know, 60% more than it would if we did it. Like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, listen to our clients. We have to be more intent. What's one thing that you could suggest on their project that would have a major impact on their community that's either cost neutral or maybe a slight upside to it? And it started this really beautiful conversation about small intentional decisions. So whatever uh, engineer said, nurses offices. If I could change one thing in schools, it would be nurses offices. Right now they're Petri dishes. Kids go in, there's germs everywhere. They often come out sicker than when they went in and you have the nurse and the nurse and how she's or he's impacted by this space. All that he was suggesting was a slight floor plan tweak because he happens to do a bunch of school design, small floor plan tweak, and then a change in the HVAC and how the cleanliness of the air and what could that look like and how are we filtering it and, and, and. He's like, these are small things we could do, but if I could do this on every project from here on out, it would have a huge impact on the human beings who are existing space. And that's exactly what I wanted to touch on. Like very small intentional choices that have a profound impact. Because if you continue to add those up project by project by project, think about what happens when we when we have that home run and, and, and what that could really look like for the inhabitants or whatever community it is that are around that project. So that's the lens that our people, not only are they looking at it from the owner's perspective, because again, we're managing a lot of our own space. So what do we want? You know, how do we want to exist, especially in a post-COVID world? I mean, our priorities shifted drastically when we went through COVID. So what do we want? Um, and then what can we make as suggestions to our clients that they could put in their space? And we did this in our space, our, our brand new space. We happen to be this week uh, or in week two of this ridiculous move. <laughs> Super exciting, loving it. Uh, I'm going to be really excited like two more weeks when things have super settled. But we did a lot of that in our space of just how do you make the experience for those humans better um, and for that community better. So there's actually one project, and I'll, I'll talk about our space in a minute, but there's a project, um, the Newark uh, Airport, they did this great terminal and they really called it sort of like a, what was the word that they they used in particular? I want to say it was really like the first ESG. They used the term ESG around the project. Okay. But the intentionality of the project was, and, and what's really cool about that project, by the way, was that the person who managed that project was the GM here at the Syracuse airport and then ended up heading, heading there. Um, but that was a project where they thought about everything. How is this, the actual building impacting the surrounding communities? Are we hiring local what are we thinking about from an environmental perspective? What opportunities are we creating? Who are our subcontractors? It was a highly intentional project. And that's really the lens we want for our projects and the lens that we have on our space in particular. That's very much the, I have uh, a family values. I literally have a, a thing downstairs in my living room that shows my family values. My wife got me for Christmas. And one of our family values is 1% better every day. Mm -hmm. um, which is very much this, how can I just change this one thing? And if I keep, 
keep building on that, what is the result after 10 projects, after 50 projects, after 200 projects? Like, where do you end up at that point, which is just becomes magical, right? Because you've just increased the the, the value uh, you know, unbelievably. So that's really, really cool. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I think for a lot of this stuff, like, again, our space. So what you'll see when you guys come to Syracuse and check out. Our oh, space. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, what you'll see in our space is, and a lot of the folks who, who are in the industry will be like, well, yeah, that's that's more or less a standard of design. But what we found is not everybody necessarily recognizes these these simple things as a standard of design. So in our space, you'll th see things like compost, and you'll see the whole building is for 200. We are in 30,000 square feet, but the whole building is 250,000 square feet, of which we uh, we own, develop, manage as well um, with other tenants and. There's compost throughout, um, and there's no single-use plastic um, things. Simple things like dual-flush toilets and motion-sensored lights and operable windows and just really small things. And what we did in our space is there's actually going to be a walking floor. We've already gone through. We designed the whole thing where it gives some stats on what does it actually mean if everybody went to dual-flush toilets in their facility, what could that mean for the city of Syracuse? If everybody went to motion sensored lights, what does that mean for the city of Syracuse? Like that is what we wanted to highlight because again, cost neutral, simple solutions that when you add them all up and at the end of the tour, there's this big aggregate of like, here's the actual impact that all of those things can have. Partially because what we find with a lot of our clients, we do a lot of work with the manufacturing sector. Um, and what we find with a lot of our clients is unless code has dictated it, or unless some sort of like grant dollars have dictated something, it's not that there's an unwillingness, but it's sort of like a, we need this fast, let's just keep going and get this thing in. We wanna to get to a point where we can say like, we can do that 100%. Here's the 10 tweaks we can make that will have a major impact on your community, surrounding communities. Are you on board? It's it's super cost-effective. Here's how we do it in our in our facilities. And so that's that's the the genuine hope to your point. I love the the one percent better every day. Oh, yeah. yeah, and our our tagline, you know, a better way to you know, a better way is what we say around here. Like constantly looking for a better way, not to slow things down, not for inefficiencies, not but to just constantly be saying, okay, guys, we, I know we you know we did it that way, but what else can we do to be better? So speaking of better, how can you be good at everything? You're doing the engineering the architecture and the construction and technically you're doing you're also the developer too so how can you how can you do that explain that uh, because from a scale perspective everything that everyone talks about in terms of scale they say niche down focus on one thing you're doing the opposite and you're still growing so obviously there's some magic in what you're doing tell us about that please yeah i think part of this is uh you know, for a really long time at the company i would just say to everybody like we are one company. We are fully integrated and we are one company. And even though you're an architect and you're an engineer, and even though structurally in New York State, we have to be set up as different companies. It's like, we are one company, damn it. And we will all get along. And it just didn't matter how, how loud I shouted it. It didn't matter how many times I brought people together in a room. It just wasn't realistic. Because to your point, architects are architects and they're really good at the thing that they do and our engineers are really good at the thing they do and our construction crews and our development crews they're good at the things that they do so I changed my tune I want to say about two years ago um, and I think it's I think it's been really great for us and we're actually more united now than we have ever been 
in which I finally realized we are all very different. Each one of our companies, let alone each each human being within the company is different, but each of our four companies is very different and should be celebrated for those differences. And instead of saying, you know, what happens over here must be the same and what over what, what is happening over here, well, they happen to be maybe building buildings, but they are different things. Um, and so how do we celebrate that? And how do we really focus on that? And that has actually been what has helped from a scale perspective, because it allows us to focus instead of saying like, from a, an accounting perspective, we must do the same everywhere across the board. Well, that's not entirely attainable. What it did give us is the chance to say, okay, what's the parity in language across the four companies? What are the similarities? Now let's recognize those differences and make decisions accordingly. Um, so I would say that that has really been it, is that, yes, we are an integrated company. Yes, that's our sweet spot. Yes, that's why clients come to us, because they have to focus on making widget X, Y, and Z, or they have to focus on running their facility. And they say, you guys take this on. We trust you. We know you're going to do a great job for us so that we can keep running our business. We still have to, we have to focus on the fact that there is an architecture industry. There is an engineering you know, way of life. There's a construction way of life and we need to adapt accordingly and support that accordingly. Does your leadership style have to change based on who you're talking to? Oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Can you give us an example? Do you have an example kind of in mind? Yeah. And I think they'll, I think they, they all know this. I mean, how I'm communicating with my architects is going to be very different with how I'm communicating with my engineers. You know, my, my architects are hyper creative. My, my architects are very, um, maybe we tried this over here and then we can try this over here, which makes them really great for our integrated model because we can, we can adapt accordingly. Whereas our engineers are like, stop talking. Tell me what you're trying to say in like two minutes and move on. <laughs> so the architects, I can like have this, you know, we're just going to sit around and we're going to talk for a while. And we're going to dream. We're going to do this stuff. And the engineers are like, thanks. We're good. We got this. So it's just, there's the nuance um, of, of everybody across the board. And it's it's actually to the point of celebrating differences. Like it's actually become a part of our culture to like acknowledge that and be like, oh, right. You're the engineer. I'm going to go talk to the architect about this. Cool. <laughs> it's actually super healthy. Like when you think of, uh, and I think of leadership this way, right? You have visionaries, you have your operator, your integrator, right? And like they it has to be known that like a visionary is going to act this way. Like that's how they're going to act. And you have to appreciate the fact that that's how they act. There are uh, downfalls uh, to that only thinking that way, but that's why you have a balance in other places. So it makes tons of sense that you'd have an engineer compared to an architecture compared to a construction guy compared to developer or, you know, all of, and, and different roles within those aspects that also think differently. So when you, when you're doing your, your vision tour here, yeah. do you, do you mix the the groups is it is tell how is the process you know because like you know your different sub you know your different companies that are underneath the the mothership are probably have different initiatives they want to focus on or different things that they're really trying to get across or trying to get more budget or trying to do all these different things so how does how does that work well a couple of things so the, the process for it is we set aside so these are these are small meetings they're roughly five to eight employees and myself. Usually there'll be maybe one other senior leadership team member there who's a part of those meetings as well. 
And the and two people in the audience that are having the tie-dye t-shirts. All right. Yeah, 100%. And they, what we'll do is go through and we just say, okay, like here's our mix of people. We want to make sure that each group is specifically like we have some from architecture, some from construction. Like we are very intentional about that. And the vision tour is a little bit different in that it is the opportunity to get everybody together and build empathy for one another because that's the piece that can be easily lost. You know, in our day-to-day, -day, we're all focused on our jobs, we're all focused on our goals, we're all focused, and it's so easy to throw each other under the bus and be like, I did my job, you know, construction fucked up X, Y, and Z, or, you know, I, whatever, whatever that looks like. So the vision tour is intentionally mixed. The vision tour is also a little bit different than, say, an all construction company meeting or an all engineering company meeting. Those are the avenues that we still offer and they're still very much there for the individual companies to have a moment to specifically talk about what their focus needs to be. And that's been a part of the scalability. Like without those meetings, without the ability to be able to have both ways of communication, it wouldn't work. And we didn't have both for a long time. We didn't just start having just construction meetings and just engineering and just architecture meetings since about like a year ago when finally it was like, oh right, <laughs> this 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 needs to change. So the vision tour is truly intended to build empathy, build camaraderie, and to have, you know, we ask some really poignant questions of the group. What are we fighting for as an organization? What what are you as the individual fighting for? And we actually go around in a group, I want to hear from each of you because what one person may say is, I want to create a future for my grandchildren and I want to have an incredible impact on that. The next person may say, I need a paycheck. I just want to go get my paycheck and I want to go home. That's okay. None of us should be angry or upset about that. The next person may say, I really want to impact the world as X, Y, and Z. Like each person has their reason for why they do what they do and why they're at the company. And I want to encourage them to think about that reason because it shouldn't be the same as a person sitting next to you. Like that's alienating. It doesn't work. We're not all cut from the same cloth. So the vision tour is actually fun. It it brings very, to your point, it brings very different perspectives, but makes for a very lively conversation. You know, when I say things like, I want to really push the environmental standards on projects, but in a very approachable way. So it tends to be the word I like to use, it's approachable. You know, there are definitely a subset that are like, why don't we push it harder? Why does it have to be approachable? Why can't we just push and push and push and push? And then you have the other person who's like, no one's going to buy that shit. <laughs> I don't, why are we about this? I actually love that. I love that dissonance. I love that because it's the basis of the conversation. It gives us a chance to have empathy and actually figure out like, why does that person feel that way? And why does this person feel this way over here? And is there something that I, as an architect, could be doing differently to better impact the person out in the field in construction? So yeah, no, it's super intentional and it sparks some really beautiful conversations. And no, we don't walk out of every vision tour having agreed on everything. And I would be heartbroken if we did. We walk out where some of it's an agreement, some of it's not, but you know what? People are talking when they leave and pushing the bounds and coming back to me and saying, are you sure? What about this? Or yeah, I'm on board. Now that I heard you talk about that, that makes a ton of sense. But I also heard this person over here and let's do that too. So. Wow. Okay. So really what you've created is engagement within your company and it's intentional within your company and you're essentially giving away for everyone to be represented. 
right? And to be heard within your company, which is super cool there. And especially at your, your size of organization, like, and with how sort of broad your organization is, I'm sure it brings in some really neat conversations that wouldn't otherwise happen. So kudos to you uh, for that. Hey everybody, Justin here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. As you know, Will and I are business nerds and love talking to leaders who've scaled their businesses using people, process, and technology. If that's something to get you all jazzed up too, then do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. Don't forget to hit the little bell so you get notified every time we drop a sweet new episode. And if you know somebody who'd be an awesome guest on the show, send them our way. Just go to buildandscale.net slash guest. Now, back to the episode. I want to focus, uh, I want to focus on something really quickly because I think it correlates here. You had talked earlier on about you started as the CMO, Chief Marketing mm-hmm. Officer, and then went to the transition of COO mm-hmm. and then finally CEO, right? Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the transition from CMO to CEO, what you were doing? And there were some things that you t- told us in the pre-interview that I really want you to share. So just talk about that for a second. And if I don't hit on them, just keep teasing. Okay, <laughs> I will. I will. Awesome. So, so yeah, started out as the chief marketing officer, um, again, came out of my MBA with, with marketing and, and corporate strategy. And, and, uh, when I, when I came out in marketing, one of the things I found out real fast with the company was, you know, I like data. I like analyzing data. I want to understand what's happening. And we just had these crazy peaks and valleys, which isn't entirely abnormal to the industry. But from my perspective, I couldn't get a really good handle on why and when and what was happening. So um, what I was finding pretty quickly, though, in the first few years was as we sold, the more we sold, the harder it was to get the work done. And we just we were an entrepreneurial company by our very nature, which meant that we were a fly by the seat of our pants company. And that is a self-proclaimed from Dave Nutting saying, you know, there's a, it's like the, the work will come and we'll just do it and, and this thing will happen. And he was absolutely right. And we did it and we did it really, really well for a really long time, but it wasn't scalable. And the more we sold and, and we sort of had this like ebb and flow. And, and I think Dave will, will be comfortable with my, with my sharing the story. He had said to me in the beginning, you know, just sell, just sell, sell, sell. And that's great. I can do that. I've got a great sales team. They're, they, they're super seasoned. They've been doing this for a really long time. We, we can sell. So what we did is we sold the shit out of things. And we found out real quick that it basically caused everything to just stop for a year because that's all anyone was focused on, the doing of the work. And we forgot to sell. You know, we just, we focused on the doing and, you know, and and that was that. And then we went into this big, you know, valley again because we hadn't done any selling. So then again, Dave said, I, I need you to just sell. And I started pushing back and saying, okay, I can sell, but we do not have the framework in place to support the sales. And that that is the number one issue. As I as I look back over these past few years, we can sell the shit out of things, but we we don't have the training, we don't have the people, we just don't have the systems and the operations in place to be able to do it. To which he responded, stay in your lane and sell. <laughs> we sold. Oh. <laughs> and went through the same exact process again had a big year, didn't feel like a big year. You know, those years where it's a big year, you got a lot of revenue pumping through, but 
every day, you're like, is this worth it? What are we doing? This is crazy. And went through the same process again. So I pushed even harder this next time. This was our third round of going through this. This is probably year four or five into this and got the same response. Stay in your lane and just sell. We'll figure it out. So we did it again. So we had three of our largest sales years in our entire history. But again, it didn't feel good. It felt messy and wrecked. What does hitting the ceiling feel like and how do you overcome it? So it was exceptionally defeating for the team, especially the sales team in particular, because that's their job. Their job is to get out there, but it's also their reputation that ends up being on the line because they're the first person that's out there and they're the ones selling it. And what they're selling isn't getting delivered upon or it's getting delivered upon, but maybe not in the way it could have or in a better way. And not only that, they're being told, stop selling. We have too much, you know, slow down, slow down, which is, again, massively defeating. So that was defeating. And then it was defeating for the, the, the people doing the work because they, they're scrambling. They're trying to keep up, but they need this one item. And they look for that one item in 15 different ways because there's no standard operating procedures or standards across the board anywhere for anything they're doing. So people were burnt out and exhausted. So it didn't matter how great the culture was. It didn't matter that. Dave had built such a, a, a tremendous machine with really good human beings within it. People were, were tired and frustrated. And for me, it was extremely frustrating because again, there's nothing worse than a job that should have been well done. You know, for me, even looking at my history, those years, those really big years, they should have been the biggest celebration and they were the biggest monster. So that was frustrating. How did we overcome it? That was how I transitioned to the chief operating officer role. So what I found real fast, I didn't really understand the COO role again in the marketing world. I can't say I was the best chief operating officer. I could see the things that needed to be worked on. I could see some of the stuff that we had to do. I was a good compliment to Dave, but maybe, maybe not the best role for me, but we did spend a few years just saying, okay. And by a few years, I mean, probably starting about four or five years ago, we said, okay, what are the standards? How are we going to start making these changes? How are we going to train people accordingly? How are we going to scale? And what's the plan? And what does that look like? And that was, it's been a very painful process. And even to this day, we're beautifully getting to the continuous improvement part of it where it's, okay, we did this thing and now we get to tweak it because of X, Y, and Z. And that feels really great, but it's been painful, you know, to say to someone, I know this is your core job, but here's, the, it, it's so funny too with people because on one hand, employees get frustrated that they need this one thing and they've had to look for that one thing 10 different ways because there is no standard. But then when you tell them, here's the standard, they're like, what do you mean there's a standard? I don't need a standard. I've got 10 other ways I can do this thing. I'm not <laughs> That's oh, you mean the problem? why we have a standard because you could do it 10 different ways. <laughs> so it's been a process to get there, um, but that's how we tackled it was truly just internally taking a look and saying like, what aren't we doing? Everything from contracts process to design standards to QA, QC to, you know, eventually like the detailed stuff that's not fun for anyone. We really made everyone think about it for especially COVID. COVID gave us the opportunity to slow down and say, okay, look inside folks. What shit do we have to get together? Never waste a good crisis. Let's figure this out. So that was, that was really, and, and we still continue that today. Like we have a fair bit of still operational excellence we want to head towards, but we're, we're definitely on the right path. 
So speaking of the pandemic, was it easy or hard transitioning to the pandemic? I don't know if it was, you know what word I would use? And this is going to sound terrible. Oh, I'm so, so bad, but whatever. The word I would use is honestly rewarding. And let me explain why. Because uh, that's like the last word anyone wants to use. It's, it's funny to me because based on you, I'm like, oh yeah, that's not what she means. Like that is not what she means, <laughs> no. but that's the word that you're going to go with. Okay. Yes, yeah, yeah, no. So what I mean in the sense is like prior to COVID, we had actually just started beta testing, getting everybody the ability to work from home. And that was something that I had believed uh, pretty passionately in because we live in upstate New York. There's a ton of snowstorms. And honestly, for me, there's no way I want anyone risking their neck coming into work during a snowstorm. Like, it's, it's just stupid. So we had actually already really started thinking about getting everyone to work from home, which meant um, transferring to laptops. We had been on desktops from a design perspective. There were many reasons why it was just easier to have desktops. So we went over to laptops. And so on March 17th, it didn't take much for me to just say, hey, everybody, we're, we're all working from home. Let's figure this out. But it was such an intentional decision. And so our senior leadership team knew what needed to be done. Um, we had people who were, you know, there were you know, a few of us at the office. Some were printing checks, some were delivering checks, we were opening mail, we were scanning mail, and we were doing crazy tasks. It was such a good reminder, though, especially once you get to a senior level of like, guys, we know how to do this. Let's take care of everybody. How are we going to get through this thing? We are construction sites um, in New York State. There was a period where it was like, they're open. They're not open. They're open. They're not open. Now you have to apply to figure out how to keep them open. And it was this just crazy making period where I, I'll, I'll never forget. I'll never forget to this day. I was actually about to get on a phone call. It was like 10 a.m. one morning, about to get on a phone call. And I got, I had, you know, my other phone over here, I got a call and they said, we have to shut our job sites down right this second. I remember getting back on the other line. It was like, I have to go shut down job sites and furlough. 80 employees. Give me a second. That weekend, we almost, we almost sent the letters to everybody. We had them packed. We had them in envelopes. There were three of us mass producing them, ready to tell them all. We were going to pick up the phone. We were ready to make phone calls. And our then CF, uh, CFO said, wait, just give it a minute. This has been changing so fast. Let's just pause. So we paused. That weekend, we spent the whole weekend filling out applications to keep our job sites open. We made a million phone calls, we worked with our lawyers, we did everything that we could, and by Monday, we were able to keep all of our job sites open. So we shredded all of our letters, we tucked them away, and we kept everybody going. When I say rewarding, what I mean is we made it. You know, we, we figured it out. We, I can now look back and say, we did what needed to be done and we kept everybody healthy and we could, we were, we were, we were, oh man, we fought so hard to keep our people healthy. And we did, we had no, I mean, we had like no, um, it's the word I'm looking for, uh, no employee passing of COVID at all, even though our job sites were open because of the standards that we had put in, because of the changes we made, because we were thinking on our feet so fast. So I just mean, we, you know, looking back at it with our senior leadership team, looking back at it with our employees and, and the empathy they had for one another and the kindness they showed one another and their willingness to help out one another. I can, I can truly look back now and say, I'm so proud of this company and the people. And it reinvigorated my love for this place. You know, at that point I had been at the company for, I don't know, eight years, seven years in the scheme of things. 
And it just, it lit a fire under me that realized like, holy shit, our people are tremendous in a time of, a, a time that people could be so selfish. They're so there. And like to the point where at one point, we, we offered additional pay for all of our employees who had to stay in person because we knew they were risking things. Like we wanted to keep them healthy. So we offered bonuses. I actually had an employee come back to me and say, I don't need that bonus. Please donate it to the local food bank. Like, what? Wow. What? Wow. Just good, wow. good, good human beings. So again, rewarding in the sense that like I look back and I'm like, we took care of our people. Everybody was safe. We, I think we did the right things. So it, I'm just so proud of everybody when I look at things in hindsight. You definitely invest heavily in your people like that. Mm -hmm. There's no question about that. Um, going into the COO role that you did, obviously investments into getting operations right and doing that. And then it, obviously you were already moving towards a, mo a mobile workforce ability there. So leveraging all three, what we call the pillars of scalability. What thoughts when it comes to technology and you're trying to leverage it like what are what are ways and thoughts that you've you've tried to do this obviously the mobile is a good example of that but what are other things that you've done to leverage the technology side so we're actually i would say we're in the throes of that right now so i think that is actually a huge gap for us and a place that we want to address and not for lack of trying so we have an incredible chief technology officer who is the, the reason we made it through COVID, the reason we're making it through this move, the reason we- The IT heroes of the world. You heard yep. it here first. That's awesome. So the thing that we're finding is this, four separate companies, different types of tech for each one of those industries, different types of tech for everything from like the actual project management to the actual, you know, whatever being used for design to our, the accounting backend of it to the, you know, the, the front end CRM and how that interfaces with everything. Technology is particularly difficult for us for that reason, because for a long time, we really wanted to find the tech that fit everybody because it would make our lives so much easier. It doesn't really exist. Creating our own system is just not attainable. So we are sort of in this like, what, what now phase? Um, to the point where we're talking about everything, like I said, from there's the, the project management side of things to the client management. So what is our interface with the client? That's a huge thing for us. Uh, you know, Brittany Hodak, what is our client experience? What can they see? Yeah, yeah, shout out, shout out. Absolutely. I was. I have so many questions for you. Not, not necessarily for the podcast, but I have so many questions for you because she's amazing. So she was the last episode that I think we released prior to recording this episode. So Man, she's a warrior. Wow, she's a warrior. When it comes to totally. client experience, holy crap. <laughs> totally killer, totally. So yeah, so we are now really starting to figure out where I sit and like what I see and one of the ways that I approach a company is, is hold for a while till we know what the problem is. Because I think if you don't actually do that and get to the root of the problem, then you will just continue throwing Band-Aids on. And I think that that is what we're recovering from right now years and years and years of one-off band-aid methods from a technology perspective. This person over here needs this without realizing there's something over here that someone needs over here. So we sort of said, chill, let's see what we've got. Are we using what we have to its greatest capability? Is it the right tool for us? And then the goal is that really we go through that through 2023 so that by 2024, we're to a point where we're like, okay, now is when we need to start either making the changes shoring up what we do have or keeping whatever is actually 
working. But I will say it's a, it's a, it's a, you guys know this world well, but it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough space to really try and, and sort out and really figure out and everything from, I mean, especially in a company like ours and to your point on scalability, it's, it is tough because we're looking at everything from what's our property management software to what are we designing in to what does construction, you know, where they, what do they have access to? And it's, there's so much complication as you know, so. Yeah, it's technology is complicated enough when you're trying to, you know, in any, any, the certainly any industry, the building industry, just in general, like there's so, there's so much complexity when you're just in one of the verticals, you're saying, Hey, we're in four or five of those, but we also want an overarching kind of connectivity to this. Like that does make the complexity obviously five, at least five times more um, interesting. So we, we understand where you're coming from. Awesome. You had shared with us something previously, and I'm hoping you can share your experience because it's very personal to you. You had shared with us a challenge that you've had pretty much your entire life uh, that you have dyslexia. Can you talk about that? And essentially, how have you been able to work through that? And we had a previous podcast guest that essentially calls that know having a superpower right mm -hmm. there's two sides so can you talk about that and both the positive and the negatives and how have you worked around that yeah absolutely so I don't think we really knew what it was when I was a kid you know I made jokes around high school and, and being a, a terrible student in high school and it was it was mainly because of that you know, it was mainly because of dyslexia um, figuring out how to work with it work around it I will say so growing up it's it's complicated it's giving me a huge amount of empathy around kids and their experience so in the way that our school system worked growing up you were you were labeled very early on and so if you received any sort of extra help in class it really stuck with you it stuck with you pretty much until you got to high school and even in high school it still stuck with you and that changed my experience considerably considerably because the message to me all throughout my you know younger years through high school was you are deficient in some way you know that's that that's the resounding message you must be taken out of the classroom to get extra help here or you must need extra this or extra that because you are deficient in some way and that when that is the way that you sort of experience the world there is there's a light and a dark side to that the dark side is it creates a deep-seated disbelief in your own intelligence and a deep-seated feeling of there's that I, I'm not on par from an intelligence perspective, that I never will be, and that everybody in the world is smarter than me, so my opinions don't necessarily matter. The light side of that, as you become an adult, is the epic amounts of empathy that gives you to other human beings and what their experience in life is and really, really understanding how are they thinking about things. You're not jumping to any sort of conclusions and, and more so just in, in conversational ways and, and ways that you're looking at the world and things like that. It also created what was what was a lack of confidence for me because of sort of always feeling like there was some major deficiency 
has created a tremendous amount of what I hope comes across as humbleness in my nature because I don't have that feeling. And I don't know if it's just, I think there's many life experiences that get you there, but I don't have that feeling of ever really being better than somebody else or being smarter than or being more than or being in any way. I don't necessarily yet or have that feeling of being less than anymore. That does not exist. But I do not ever have that feeling of being more than, no matter who that human being is, no matter what their role is in the world, no matter where they sit, every single human being deserves a tremendous amount of, of at least empathy understanding. So it is definitely, I love the superpower reference because it is 100% my superpower. It has shaped a lot of, of how I think about the world. But in my, go ahead. Can I ask, what adjustments have you had to do with your process or your company processes yeah. in order to help support that? Yeah, the way that I think that that really applies is, so so I see I see the world other people and that's how I want to say it's, it's my superpower I, I can see details I can see root, root causes I can see a million tiny pieces of information and how those millions of pieces of information can come together where it's really hard at work is communicating with the senior leadership team and other employees on how I see the world like that's very very difficult so there has been a certain level of of my figuring out how I need information from them to make the most poignant CEO decisions I can. And a lot of that has had the, the, the way I've had to really change that is just brutal honesty and making sure they understand it's not a reflection of them, but you can't give me information in this form because I just don't get it. I can't make the decision I'm looking to make. This is the form I need it. And it may be totally non-traditional and it may be different than what another typical or you know neurotypical person may need. But this is how I make that decision, which means that my trust in particular, the senior leadership team, is paramount. And I just told them all the other day, I'm like, I, I cannot do this without all of you. I, I truly cannot. And I don't know if I've ever trusted a group of people the way that I trust our senior leadership team and the, the eight individuals that are on that team, because they are willing to work in this context. They understand and they see how I see things. They've been willing to learn how I see things. And so it's been really interesting. But I think it's part of, you know, we talk a lot about the people element. We talk about how the company is kind of set up. My ability to see the world the way that I do isn't a hindrance. It has helped us as a company, I think, and in what we do. That is awesome perspective to have. And thank you for sharing that. I hope someone hears you speak and I hope it helps them. Uh, in their world. I'm in a very similar world. While not dyslexic, definitely have ADHD. Very similar, a lot of similarities and kind of issues and how to overcome. So Justin, you want to take it away with our last question that we always like to For ask. Sure. Uh, absolutely. So uh, we asked this to everybody. So we're excited about asking you it. So if you could go back 20 years, Meg, what would you tell your younger self? That would be 2003, by the way. I believe old school came out that year. I really need to look and see if that's true or not. You know, it's, a, it's a newer year, so I, I don't have all the references ready. <laughs> Amazing. So what would I say to myself then? Mm, I would 
I honestly, I would probably say the same thing I would to myself that I would have a few years later from that as well. And it's the thing I, I almost always tell people if they could look back is to take the vacation. And from that, I just mean that for me and the way I've been wired, even from back in 2003, is this tremendous amount of responsibility to a job and to people and to always want to be there for them, which almost always means that I put myself second or put myself last or all of those things. And I can't tell you, I say take the vacation because there have actually been many vacations, even when I was in college, where I was like, I can't possibly take that because I have this responsibility. This is the thing I have to do. This is what I have to focus on right now. And my adult self knows that that was only to my detriment and that the vacation is the thing that gets your brain thinking differently. It's the thing that shakes it all up and gets you to start seeing things and you see different human perspectives and different way things are designed and that things are built. So my advice is always take the vacation. Did you think you would own a nanobrewery in 2003? God, no. I, you know what I think <laughs> I, I would own? I thought I would own a record label. You Fine. still can. You got plenty of time. I do, trust me. It's in the back of my mind. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, well, let us know when the record label comes out because we're we're very interested in that life too. It's awesome. Is there anything else you want to share with the people uh, or tell uh, tell tell the listeners? All I want to say is thank you so much to the two of you. This has been an absolute blast. I uh, I think you guys are doing amazing things, and um, thank you very much. Thank no, you. Thank we you. Appreciate that. Uh, we will drop all uh, all the social links and all that stuff in the show notes there. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, is, is there a good way for them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. My email address is mtid, T-I-D-D, at vipstructures.com. Reach right out to me there. Awesome, awesome, awesome. All right, well, to all our listeners, uh, I hope you had fun because we know we did. And until next time, adios. Adios. Farewell. Thanks for listening to Building Scale to help us reach even more people. Please share this episode with a friend, a colleague, or on social media. Remember, the three pillars of scaling a business are people, process, and technology. And our mission is to help the AEC industry protect itself by making technology easy. So if you think your company's technology pillar could use some improvement, book a call with us to see how we can help maximize your IT and cybersecurity strategy. Just go to buildingscale.net slash help. And until next time, keep keep building building scale. scale.